Good morning, church family. Good to greet all of you. Thanks for being here today. I want to welcome all the folks who are joining us online. Grab a Bible if you brought one and uh, turn to the Old Testament book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. And when you get there, find chapter 3 and just hold that ready. While you're doing that, I need to share something with you real quick. It's that time of year when we have men who have been faithfully serving as elders of our church for the past three years. We have a certain number of them that are going to rotate off the elder board, which means we'll have another certain number of men who will rotate on in the beginning of January. Now, our protocol in the past has always been to publish all of that information in the bulletin that you normally receive when you come to church. So you can see their pictures, their names, and their bios. And you can see that we give everyone every year when this happens the opportunity to look over those names prayerfully, and if you have some kind of question or concern about any one of those men, then you can put that in writing and send it here to the church. Attention elders and our current elders will review that with regard to uh, their uh, nomination. But all of the men who are going to be serving again beginning in January have already previously served as elders. They've already gone through the ordination uh, period. Uh, they are Luke Akerd, Rick Neville, and Clark Wilson, guys who've all been a part of our church family for a long, long time. You may or may not know them. So here's what I want you to do. Just go to our website, mpcc.info, on the homepage, one of the three screens that uh, goes across on the homepage says elders, and you can click on that and you can see all that information uh, and you can familiarize yourself with who, who those men are. And just, I would also just ask that you would just pray uh, for those men who faithfully shepherd our church family year after year after year. Well, I know this is kind of unusual, but I want to begin uh, our message time this morning by singing a familiar Christmas hymn together. I've asked our world-renowned uh, worship and arts pastor, Brian Tabor, to hang around on the stage for a little while so that he can assist us in this. But uh, given the fact that our sermon series for December is called Once Upon a Time in Bethlehem, let's just sing the first verse of O Little Town of Bethlehem together, okay? He's going to lead us. We'll just all jump in together. think of the last time I think I sang that song was in October of 2019, and I was sitting inside a small cave at a place outside of Bethlehem called the Shepherd's Field. It's one of my favorite places to visit when you go to the Holy Land, simply because uh, there are so many incredible things that happened in and around Bethlehem in both the Old and the New Testament, of course, not the least of which was the birth of of Jesus. And we sat in that cave. I was there with uh, half of the group that went with me uh, to the Holy Land that year, and we sang that together. It was a very memorable, memorable time. One of the reasons I wanted to open up this part of the service by singing that, though, is because uh, the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, like so many of the familiar hymns over the years, has a backstory or 
a story behind the story of how it came to be written. Uh, Philip Brooks was the composer of this familiar hymn, and he was the minister of the Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. He visited the Holy Land in 1865, and a part of his itinerary was to travel by horseback from the city of Jerusalem to the tiny town of Bethlehem. It's about a six-mile journey. Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. And so he found himself on Christmas Eve that year in the shepherd's field just imagining what it must have been like to hear angels announce the birth of Jesus. A little bit later, he was in the town of Bethlehem at a Christmas Eve service at the church of the nativity there, and it was just an incredibly special experience for him, one that he carried with him long after he returned to the States. Well, down the road, one year, he wanted a new song for the children of his church to be able to sing at Christmas, and he drew upon his memory of his experience in the Holy Land, and the one thing that stood out to him above everything else was spending Christmas Eve in the area and the town of Bethlehem. And so he sat down and he wrote a poem that would become the lyrics to the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He went to his church organist and asked him if he would put together a simple melody that could be used by the children to sing this song. And the church organist tried day after day after day, but nothing would come to him, no inspiration. He couldn't think of a single tune that would fit the words of the poem. And so he went to bed on the night before the Christmas Eve service, defeated and despondent, but then heard music in his head in the middle of the night, got up right away, wrote down the music exactly the way he heard it, and that became the tune to the song that we just sang together. When he delivered that to Reverend Brooks, he said, I think this was a gift directly from heaven. I tell you that story because it's a good example of a backstory. And you know what I mean by a backstory, the story behind the story. And that is something that I want us to think about, not just today, but through the entire month of December as we go through this special Christmas series called Once Upon a Time in Bethlehem, because what I want us to understand or what I want us to be reminded of or what I want us perhaps for you to learn or know for the very first time is the backstory behind Bethlehem, the backstory behind the birth of Jesus. Once upon a time in Bethlehem, more than 2,000 years ago, the entire world was in disarray. Even though it was in an era of what was called Pax Romana, which was a phrase that described a time of unprecedented peace throughout the Roman Empire, that peace had come at a tremendous price. And in Israel, God's people were under the rule of an incredibly abusive leader who had worked systematically for years to limit their freedoms and to exploit them in any way possible. But even though that was the case, throughout all of Israel, among God's people, there continued to be this incredible expectation of someone who would come, a Messiah who would come, who would lead them out of that bondage and into a time of genuine peace and prosperity. That's the backstory to Bethlehem. But Bethlehem is not where that story begins. And so that brings us to Genesis chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles open there and you're able today, stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. It's just a very brief passage today. might seem like an unusual one for a Christmas sermon, but bear with me this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I want you to follow along as I read. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All right, there it is. You can be seated. As always, we ask the blessing of God on the reading and the hearing of his word. See, the backstory for Bethlehem began hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus in a place we're familiar with called the Garden of Eden. When God created the world, he created a paradise for Adam and Eve, called it the Garden of Eden. And it was an incredible place for Adam and Eve to live and enjoy their life together. All of that happened in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. But when you turn the page to Genesis chapter 3 where we were just reading, we see the serpent who is a manifestation of Satan appear and deceive Eve and ultimately Adam by getting them to eat the fruit of the garden that was forbidden by God. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. And that act, that disobedience, that sin resulted in what we call the fall it, entered, it allowed sin to enter into the world, and when sin entered into the world, a separation took place between God and man. Because, listen to me, friends, this was true in Genesis chapter 3, and it's true in our lives today. Sin separates. That's what it does. It wasn't long until the world was filled, this perfect world that God had created was filled with violence and hatred and corruption and greed and on and on and on in many ways. It was not that different from the world we live in today. And as a result of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, God spoke in anger to that serpent who, remember, was a manifestation of Satan. We just read what he said. The words were a prophecy or better yet a promise that someday someone was going to come into the world and undo the damage that the serpent had set in motion. In other words, one day God was going to take steps to make everything right and the final part of that prophecy or that promise is particularly telling as God speaks about that one who would come that we know is the Messiah. Ultimately, as he speaks about that one who would come, he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, he says, Satan, you may hurt him a little for a little while, but ultimately, he's going to take you out. And so your days are numbered. Well, you fast forward from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 12 and beyond, and you see God's plan for this one to come. God's plan for the Messiah begins to unfold as he creates the nation of Israel, the Jewish race. And he creates them with the promise that the one who would come would come from that people. And the promise of the coming one would be reiterated over and over again in literally hundreds of prophecies that we find throughout the Old Testament until ultimately, finally, spoiler alert, they were all fulfilled in Jesus. Some of the prophecies were very specific. Some of them were very general. But the one thing they all had in common is all of them offered hope. Let me give you an example. Look at these words from Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. The prophet writes, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Well, listen, 
You can only imagine the kind of expectation this created among God's people as they waited. And as they waited, they would often speculate about how this promise would be fulfilled and who the Messiah would be and what it would be like. They didn't usually get the details right, but what they did get right is that someday God would send the Messiah to establish his king, or excuse me, his kingdom forever. And it wasn't just the Jews who held on to this promise. Ancient historians confirm this growing expectation of a great ruler who would one day come for God's people. According to the writings of men like Suetonius and Tacitus and Josephus, this man would come from an out-of-the-way, dirt-poor, often-overlooked region in the Roman Empire called Judea. Here's another interesting part of that backstory. As the time grew closer and nearer for the Messiah to come, more than a thousand miles away from where God's people lived, were located a group of magi, and they were busy going about their business. The magi were a fraternity of scholars who were basically spiritual advisors to the kings of Persia. They were philosophers and mystics and scientists and priests, and they're also students of the stars because they believed that prophetic messages could be found in the interpretation of celestial events. And so, it happened that some point before the birth of Christ, they observed an alignment of the planets that indicated to them the coming of a king. And it wasn't just a message as far as they were concerned. It wasn't just a message of a man who was going to come to power. It was a message of a child who was going to be born, who would be destined to be the greatest ruler that the world has ever known. And they determined, of all places, it would take place in a place called Judea. And because they sincerely believed what the heavens seemed to be saying, they did the only thing that they knew to do. And they packed up a caravan. They began a journey, this lengthy, long journey, because they were more than a thousand miles away. They began a journey toward the city of Jerusalem because they believed when they arrived in the city of Jerusalem, they would be able to determine exactly where the star was leading, the exact point or site where the star was leading. And speaking of Jerusalem... Another part of the backstory is there was a man living in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Maybe you recognize that from Luke chapter 2. There's not a lot written about him in Luke chapter 2, but what we're told is that he was a man who was righteous and devout. And here's the thing about Simeon. He was a man who pretty much had spent his entire life praying for the coming of a Messiah. But what made him different from most people is that somehow God had told him that he was not going to die until he saw the Messiah, that he was not going to die until he saw God's chosen one face to face. And so Simeon lived his entire life in expectation. And every year his expectation grew more and more and more because every year he grew older and older and older. And now he's no longer a young man. But he wasn't the only part of the backstory that took place in Jerusalem. There was another person who had a big interest in the coming of this Messiah, in the birth of this child who would be a king, only his interest was different than the rest because it was sinister in nature. His name was Herod the Great. 
I don't have time to give a lot of background on Herod, but he was a wicked and an evil man, as wicked and evil a man as ever lived, primarily because he was pathologically insincere, or excuse me, insecure. As a result, he considered everyone a threat. He once killed 300 officers in his army because he doubted their allegiance. On another occasion, he thought his wife was plotting to kill him. So he had her arrested, put through the mockery of a trial, and executed, put to death. And just for good measure, he did the same for her mother and her brother. Another time, he thought his oldest son, whose name was Antipater, was conspiring against him, so he executed him. Later, he became suspicious of his two younger sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, and so he had them executed. He had his two younger sons beheaded because he was suspicious of them. Herod was a madman, and the idea that a child was going to be born who would one day become the king of the Jews terrified him, terrified him. But he wasn't the only royal participant in the backstory of Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor at the time. He was Herod's boss. And around this same time, as we, drew, as we draw nearer to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, he decided that a census should be taken throughout the Roman world. Who among us have not read or heard the words of Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 dozens and dozens of times over our lifetimes. I read these words every Christmas morning with my family gathered around. I've done it as long as I can remember. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 begins, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the entire, that a census should be taken rather of the entire Roman world. And the reason behind that census was really simple. You can't tax your citizens and you can't compel your young men to military service if you don't know who they are or where they are. And so he ordered this census where everyone was to return to his ancestral city. Or in other words, everyone was returned to the birthplace of their family and register their residency and all the personal details of their lives. For most citizens, that wasn't much of a journey because in ancient days, most people lived in the region where they were born. But for the main characters of the story, and we'll talk about them in just a moment, it did involve a long journey, a long journey in the context of ancient times. And so it turns out that this seemingly arbitrarily uh, ordered census would play a vital role in the backstory of Bethlehem. And now Bethlehem enters the story. Uh, one of the ancient prophecies that had been made about the coming one who would make all things right, about the Messiah that God's people lived in expectation of was that he would literally be born in the town of Bethlehem. As I mentioned a moment ago, Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 contains the prophecy, and it literally says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old from ancient times. Bethlehem was just a quiet little community. You'd be hard-pressed to call it a town, certainly not a city, hardly affluent, population of barely a 1,000 people, not the kind of place where you would expect a king to be born, although if you're a student of your Bible, in particular the Old Testament, you know that there was a king that had been previously born in Bethlehem. His name was David. 
Same David who killed Goliath. Same David who became the greatest king in the history of Israel. Same David who wrote most of the Psalms. But according to the prophets, another king would be born. And he would be the king of all kings. And he would come from this tiny village as well. Now, a huge part of the backstory of Bethlehem involves the people God chose to be the ones who would bring this child into the world. You would think he would choose someone who was a high-profile member of the community, but he didn't. He chose a couple of poor working-class people from poor working-class families in the small town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee, which was about 80 miles north of Bethlehem. Remember I said there was nothing flashy or particularly noteworthy about Bethlehem. It was a quiet community, community, hardly affluent, relatively small population. That was true to an even greater extent of Nazareth. At least Bethlehem was close to Jerusalem. They could say, hey, we're a bedroom community of Jerusalem. At least Bethlehem can say, hey, this is our claim to fame. David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, was born right here. Travel into Bethlehem, there'd be a big sign. Welcome to Bethlehem, the town of David. But Nazareth had no such claim. It was in a remote location, mostly rural, predominantly poor, known for nothing. In fact, and I'm sure some of you are aware of this, a little later, we're in the New Testament now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, a man named Philip said to his friend Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's response was, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? It wasn't a place respected by anyone. But, and this is one of the strongest things we learn from the story of Bethlehem, and one of the strongest things we're going to be reminded of in this month-long series, God is not an elitist. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you came from. doesn't even matter what you've done. He invites everyone to be a part of his family. And so God chose Joseph and Mary to be the family of the Messiah to be the central figures in the Christmas story. First, there was Joseph. He didn't play the role of a traditional father, but the truth is he was asked to play a role far more essential and far more challenging. He was a carpenter, which means he was an ideal choice for this role because he had a marketable skill. He had a good reputation, as, and as we'll see in weeks to come, he was a man of great character and great courage. And then there was Mary. We don't know how old she was when she got the news that she would give birth to the Son of God, but she was certainly just a teenager, just a young girl, because that was the age that young women got married in ancient days. And while we don't have time to go into the details of how the couple came together, we know that their marriage was decided by someone else, or in other words, it was an arranged marriage. And in ancient days, there were three steps to that process. First of all, there was the courtship. We would think about that in our culture. We would think about that as the engagement. 
Then secondly, there was the betrothal, which was something that would last for a year in ancient days. During the betrothal, a couple were considered man and wife legally, they, and they were in every way except one. They weren't physically intimate. But the betrothal was a legally binding arrangement. They were legally married, and the only way to get out of a betrothal in ancient days was through the process of divorce. Then the third part was just the marriage itself. It was made official with a community-wide celebration followed by a honeymoon. And when we meet Joseph and Mary in the story of Bethlehem, they were betrothed, which is to say they were legally man and wife, committed to one another for life, but they were not living in the same house and they were not sleeping in the same bed. They thought their future was all mapped out. They thought their future was certain. But all that changed one day when Mary, who was by herself for some quiet time, was interrupted by an angel with a message that was almost too incredible to believe. A message that would change the world for her and Joseph. And a message that would change the world for all of us as well. Change the world for everyone. We're going to pick the story up right there next week. But before we close, I'm compelled to share three things with you about this backstory to Bethlehem. The first one is this. God is always at work behind the scenes to make the details of our lives come together. God is always at work behind the scenes to make the details of our lives come together. You know, as we go through life, oftentimes all we see are what seem to us to be random events and random occurrences that for the most part seem completely out of our control. But God is always in control. And he's always bringing the details together. You look at the backstory for Bethlehem and you see that even something as seemingly random as a self-serving emperor 3,000 miles away from Bethlehem deciding on a whim to take a national census so that he can increase taxes throughout the world, that might have seemed like it was just a random thing or that it was just his decision. But the truth is it was God at work behind the scenes delivering the promised Messiah. I love these words from Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9. Solomon writes and says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. God is always at work. And that's a truth that we need to hang on to in our lives. If you believe in God today, if you're surrendered to the will of God in your life today, then you have to believe that God can take what seem to be random moments and random occurrences in your life and weave them together to form his plan, his eternal plan for you. The second truth is this. The outcome of God's work will always be good. The outcome of God's work will always be good. And I know there are times... When things happen in life, there are times when things happen in our lives that make that hard to believe. You know, this doesn't normally happen. I almost always know the change for a dollar story before I come into church. But when I heard the change for a dollar story this weekend for the first time last night, that broke my heart. 
to see that beautiful little girl on the screen and to imagine her going through the horror and the trauma of being engulfed in flames. And you hear about something like that or you learn about something like that and you think, how in the world, how in the world can God ever make anything good come from that? And then you hear the testimony of her father. And then you get the opportunity as a church family to come alongside people that you've never met and may never know and make a difference in their life and their journey along the way. We remember these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. He says, and we know that in all things, everyone say all things, all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And we have to believe by faith that God can take any event, no matter how ugly it might be or how unplanned it might be, and turn it into something good for all eternity. That's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of God that we need to trust. Because Joseph has always been my favorite character in the Old Testament, I always think of his life when I encounter a time when it's hard for me to believe that God can turn this into something good. And I think about the trauma of him being turned on by his brothers as a teenager and sold into slavery, being ripped from his home and everything familiar to him. They went back and they told his father that he was dead and he finds himself in Egypt and he has one bad experience after another in Egypt where he's lied about and mistreated and forgotten seemingly to just rot away. And then through the providence of God, through the providence of God, he finds himself as the second most powerful man in Egypt, which is to say he was the second most powerful man in the entire world. And through his efforts, many lives are saved because of the way he manages the resources of Egypt during a time of famine. And you remember the story. Ultimately, his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, come for food. And ultimately, they are reunited and they're together. And then after their father dies, the brothers are afraid that Joseph now will exact his revenge on them. And when he becomes aware of that, he says these words to them. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, he said, You intended to harm me, but God, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended it to harm me, but God, who was sovereign and in control and always a part of the backstory, the greater story, intended it for good. Friday's my day off, and Sandy and I had a list of uh, things to do on Friday that started with a visit to the hardware store and you don't have to chuckle because I wasn't the one going in the hardware store. It was her. And so I dropped her off at the curb. I was going to park and come in the store, but as soon as she got out of the door, my phone rang, and it was Brother Ajay Law calling me from India, our dear, dear ministry partner in India who's been our living link at this church for almost 30 years. And I answered the phone, and I said, Brother Ajay, and he said, Brother Chris, I just wanted to call and hear your voice. And we had a conversation in the parking lot of the hardware store. And over the course of the conversation, I was asking how things were going in India, and we were talking about different ministries. And let me just tell you one little thing that he told me. The CICM, Central India Christian Mission, has something called the Central 
or excuse me, the Calvary International Biblical Academy. They call it CIBA for short, C-I-B-A, the Calvary International Biblical Academy. And on a normal, in a normal time period, they would have about 200 students. They would be training about 200 pastors, soul winners for India. But because they're not able to meet in person now in India because of the pandemic, they're doing everything online. And for this semester that's about to conclude, instead of having about 200 students, the last time I was in India, Tricia and I were there a couple of years ago, and I spoke at the graduation. They had 170 graduates, which was the most, which was the most in the history of the academy. But instead of having about 200 students now enrolled in person, they have 6,100 enrolled in line, online at a cost of $12. And they're convinced that in 2021, the number will be over 10,000. And Brother Ajay says to me on the phone, he says, Brother Chris, we've been praying that the Lord would double the number of believers in India every year between now and the time I retire. Brother Ajay is exactly the same age that I am. But I didn't know how it would happen because I didn't know how we could train enough pastors. You think there's anything good that can come out of this pandemic? And listen to me, friends. It's not just in India. It's everywhere. It's right here. Good things can come. And why do we say that? Because we know there's a God who's in control. Somebody say amen to that. And we know that the outcome of God's work will always, always be good Let me give you a third truth and we'll close. Understanding those first two truths, and remember, God is always at work behind the scenes to make the details of our lives come together. That was number two. And the outcome of God's work will always be good. Number two, that was number two. Understanding those first two truths can allow us or will allow us to face the future with hope and expectation. Hope and expectation. We don't always know what God is doing. We don't always know why God is doing what he's doing or allowing the things to happen that are happening. We don't always know how things are going to work out in our lives. But if we have faith in the God that we claim to believe in, we can be sure that things will ultimately work out. I love these words from the very first part, part of Psalm 138 and verse 8. The psalmist says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. In fact, I want you to read those with me. Let me hear your voices. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me, even in a pandemic. God will fulfill his purpose for you and for me if we continue to trust him. And if you continue, if we continue to allow him to lead our lives. One of the strongest things the Bible teaches us about God, and we see it in the backstory to Bethlehem, is that he is always up to something. Do you believe that today? God is always up to something. That's been true from the book of Genesis all the way to the end of the story. Not just all the way to today, but ultimately to the end of the story. 
And so I guess the last thing I would say to you today is that there is a backstory. Just like there's a backstory to Bethlehem, there's a backstory to your life. And that backstory to your life, no matter how discouraged you might feel today or how confused or lost you might feel today, the backstory of your life begins and ends with these simple words from God I love you. I love you. And so that means that we all need to do two things. That first one is to surrender our lives to God, the control of our lives to God today. And the second is to trust him, be willing to trust him with every single detail of our lives. Every single detail. I want you to pray with me this morning. Father, thank you so much for this time to be together and to talk about Bethlehem and to be more specific, the story behind Bethlehem, the backstory where you had been at work for years and years and years with regard to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, who would ultimately make all things right as he makes all things new. Help us to trust that you are at work in the same way in our lives, in our families, in our church, in every part, and help us to trust you with that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a, one final song here in just a moment, but before we do, I want to remind you, as I do each and every week, that when the service is over, there'll be some folks down front who would love to pray with you or for you, and I want you to listen to me close. If you came to church this morning and you're struggling in your life, you're struggling to make sense of the details of your life right now, or there's someone or something happened in your family that don't make sense to you, and you're wondering where God is and what the message is and what the long-term plan can be, and it's a burden that you're carrying with you, would you come and let somebody pray with you? You don't have to give them a lot of details. You don't have to say a thing. Just let somebody minister to you today. Don't be afraid to come. And when you're joining us online like you are today, and you have the same concerns. You've got a service host. You've got a campus, an online campus pastor there who would love to pray for you and encourage you today. Please, please, if you're struggling, reach out to someone today. Let's go ahead and stand together.